Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Roger Landry. Dr. Landry is a retired, highly decorated full colonel, former chief flight surgeon at the Air Force Surgeon General's Office in Washington. His work there took place on five continents, and he was medically involved in a number of significant world events, including Vietnam, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, the Beirut bombing of the Marine barracks, the first seven shuttle launches, and the first manned balloon crossing of the Pacific. Dr. Landry is also a preventative medicine physician who has spent a decade smashing stereotypes of aging and redefining the possibilities of older adulthood. He received his MD degree at Tufts University of Medicine and his MPS at Harvard University School of Public Health. He is currently the president of Masterpiece Living, a group of multidiscipline specialists in aging who partner with communities to assist them in becoming destinations for continued growth. Dr. Landry has conducted extensive practical research on the influence of lifestyle on the aging process and compiled his findings in his first book, Live Long, Die Short, A Guide to Authentic Health and Successful Aging. You can find out more at www.livelongdieshort.com. Welcome, Dr. Landry. It's my privilege, Alan. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I was very anxious to have you here for a number of reasons. The first is that I am short. <laughs> and I certainly will die short. And secondly, the idea that as a person who is now past 70, myself, 72, you know, I'm interested in what has become of us. I just read something. People are going to be living to 100 on a regular basis now. So Fast. why should we be retiring when we're 65 yes. years old? It seems absurd. It's the fastest growing uh, segment of our population, those over 80 and over 100, even larger percentage growth. Quite remarkable. So we have rules here in New York State that a court of appeals justice, which is our highest court in New York, has to retire at 70 years old. The legislature had a chance to change that. They didn't do it. The governor said, well, I'm not so sure it's a great idea. I don't know that he said those words, but he certainly let out that feeling. That's a mistake, isn't it? I believe it is. You know, when public safety is involved, like say with airline pilots, you know, you can understand some sort of um, regulatory aspect of aging. But however, even the airline pilots now can fly another five years and that, that'll probably, than they did before, and that'll probably be extended also. It's about performance. Uh, we have this rampant ageism still in our society. It's not malevolent. It's not intended to be mean-spirited, but it's a misunderstanding about aging, about the capabilities of age, the potential for growth with age, and it's throughout all of our policies. So you write this book. It's terrific. Uh, and again, I want to remind everybody, it's Live Long, Die Short, A Guide to Authentic Health and Successful Aging by Dr. Landry. Now, one of the things that you've done is to give us 10 tips to achieve authentic health and successful aging. The first one is use it or lose it. What does that mean? Well, your grandmother probably told you this. Your mother probably told you this. My grandmother could hardly speak English. <laughs> oh, well, she said it in whatever language. <laughs> In my association with the military, I was associated with NASA, and I, this provided, I think, a superb example of this whole concept. Remember during the Apollo program, if you recall, there were a couple flights when they came back where they had to be removed from the helicopter in a stretcher. I mean, this was remarkable. These were highly trained athletes, very highly selected, and in just two weeks in space in Apollo, they were on their backs. 
we know now, we didn't then, but we know now that that was due to the fact that in weightlessness, you didn't have to use your muscles and your heart took a rest because it didn't have to pump against the resistance. And so in such a short time, they lost the ability to pump blood, to stand up, to use their muscles. Long-term flights now, you, with the space station, astronauts can lose up to 25% of their muscle mass. Really? Absolutely. There's beginning, now that they understand it, they have machines and treadmills and things that, to work out, but they still lose muscle mass. That takes many years to get back. When I was a, a physician, we used to put someone at strict bed rest for a week. A clinical physician, I'm still a physician, <laughs> put people at strict bed rest for a week, and we know now that's probably the equivalent of aging maybe a couple years in our physiology and in our muscles. You get it back when you start to use it again. But think if uh, you go a lifetime without, uh, or long, long periods without using certain muscles, without using certain skills. We can't expect to have those skills when we age. So what do we do? Well, we use them. First of all, I think it's to acknowledge the fact that we can continue to grow as long as we have a pulse. That is something that we as a society just don't believe. We feel we learn and, and we learn at a certain time, we use our skills, and then we begin a process of decline. Research has told us that to the extent that we use things, well, first of all, if we have a pulse, we can grow. So if you're going to grow, that's about learning new things. It's about using the things that you have. So you can it, grow new bone? You can grow new bone. In fact, you replace most of your body cells about every 120, every six months. Every cell in your body, except perhaps your brain. And so we don't know yet why we replace them with deficient cells, but the fact is we can. You can grow new bone, you can grow new muscle. It's just a matter of using. Can you grow a new kidney? Well, we believe that with stem cell technology and uh, that we're gonna be able to do that. We don't know how to key the body to do that, but the cells in the body do indeed have that potential. But we will know how sooner we or will. later, right? We will, yeah. we will, absolutely will. You know, the new research on ages tells us that so much more is possible, that we can age in a way where we continue to grow and we can limit the time that we're impaired or sick. We expect this long slide of decades uh, mm -hmm. now as we age. It doesn't have to be that way. We can indeed live long, die quickly, <laughs> yeah. die short by just a lifestyle. And this lifestyle is actually, you know, we try to get it from the outside, from experts and things, and we're, we're bombarded with possibilities of lifestyle, what to eat, how to do. When in reality, this lifestyle is embedded in our very DNA. We inherit it from our ancestors. Now, let me tell you how that works. Say for the full time that man has been on Earth is one year. About 363 days of that, we were hunter-gatherers. And we had a special set of characteristics with those societies. These have been deeply embedded in our DNA. They were adaptations then, but now they're needs that we have. Our technology and the way we live today since the Industrial Revolution has radically changed how we live, and we have actually forgotten what it is that we need to be healthy. And He's, yet, Doctor, in those days, we died in our 30s and 40s, we and did. now we're dying in our upper 70s. We did. That's one of the benefits of technology. It was accidents and injuries that killed people then. We've been able to overcome that, so now we can live into our ninth, 10th, 11th decade even. Mm. But the fact is, is that without connecting with these core needs that we have, many decades of that can be spent in decline. Can impaired. we be specific about those core needs? I mean, the cavemen would go out and bring a bow and arrow and go after a dinosaur or a saber-toothed tiger. 
How do we replace those instincts? Well, John Kabat-Zinn from the University of Massachusetts says we are analog creatures in a digital world. And so how do we do that? How do we go back to those things? Well, if we look at those cultures, they moved a lot. I mean, by definition. There's a very physical society. Social connection was very tight. In fact, this was more about the entire group and a higher purpose, which was survival, surely, than it was the individual. Anyone who exhibited the kind of uh, selfishness or individual concern could be exiled, and that meant certain death. And we were tight with nature. Intergenerational contact was huge. Everyone had a role. The way we ate, fruits, nuts, vegetables, and we ate in a, a sort of a grazing way, maybe three, four, five, six times a day whenever it was available. Well, Yule Gibbons tried to do that to us, and he died early. <laughs> well, <that? laughs> I, I do. I do recall that. You know, luckily, we don't make decisions and policy based upon, you know, one or two stories because, as we know— Good point. Uh, I accept uh, that. I accept that mild rebuke. <laughs> it's not a rebuke. It is an excellent observation, and uh, we get it all the time in preventive medicine, you know. My, my Ph.D. advisor used to say, an old Yiddish expression, quote, for example, stinks. Absolutely. I, I love it. Well, we have smokers who live to 100, sure. but most of them don't. <laughs> and oftentimes those smokers live a lifestyle— in fact, the benefit of being socially connected uh, has been, e e uh, the equ has been uh, characterized as the equivalent of, uh, of uh, uh, if you're not connected, it's the equivalent of smoking, so that we can offset some of these other dangers. So give us an example have. of social connection in a modern setting. In a modern setting, it's not having 400 friends who you never touch or no. see, no. if you know what I'm getting at. I know at. exactly what you get. It's what we're doing here, Alan. You're looking me in the eye, and I'm looking you in the eye. How much of communication, people, most experts say around two-thirds of communication, is nonverbal? It is your body, is sure. my, my body position, my face, the eyes. Uh, this is connection. This is communication. Now, connection, I believe, is being part of a group that has a higher purpose. In the military, I don't think I have ever had such a rewarding feeling as I did being a member of a small combat unit. And the higher purpose was survival. You might not like the guy next to you, but you would do anything. Were you actually a them. fighter? I was a physician in a squadron that was in combat, a flying squadron. And as a flight surgeon, you flew at them because... Really? You got in the plane? Absolutely. And on combat missions because... Um, Interesting. The whole idea of a flight surgeon is interesting. Uh, you're a threat to their career. Most of them want to fly and, and love to fly. It's the rare exception they don't. And you were a threat to that. As a flight surgeon, I could ground sure. them, and they would never fly again. There's at least one World War II movie, which always comes on the old movie channel, about the flight surgeon who grounds people despite the begging. Ex exactly. So why would you come to me, Alan, if you have a little pain here or pain yeah. there? You would avoid that. And so it was very important, and the Air Force saw it, to embed flight surgeons into the very culture. So we flew with them. We were required to fly with them, their missions, their airplanes. We took care of their families. We deployed with them. We lived with them. We were a tight unit with a higher purpose. Are they the best? your best friends for the rest of your life? They are still my friends, absolutely. I just went to the wedding of one of my uh, fighter Thank pilot you. friends yes. who remembers to this day he had to jump out of a fighter over the English Channel, and when he woke up, I was the first person he are and he said, I'll never forget that. Well, well, we, so that's a social that's a social group. So it's a social group, but it's connecting on a personal level 
and it usually involves a higher purpose of that group. How about a religious group? So religious you, groups you, work. Part of a church absolutely, or a absolutely. This is one of the major benefits, I think, of faith-based groups is it brings together a community with this definition of higher purpose, maybe a different higher purpose or differently defined, but they feel that there's something bigger than themselves. So you think, and research shows, don't let me ever put words in your mouth, that if you have that kind of social connection, you'll live longer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's happening in our society, Alan? First of all, as an older adult, you become more and more marginalized. I like to say we pasteurize our older adult like a horse, not milk, and uh, because they really have no role. We reward them with recreation, and we reward them with no role. So is retirement a mistake? It's a big mistake as we define it now. As we define it now, it reflects ageism, namely the lack of understanding that someone can continue to grow. Look, as a society, how can we afford to take this resource of older adults and just throw it away? It's like if we were to collect a large sum of gold, and when we finally had it, we just threw it out. We never used it. The experience of older adults, look, we're the first society uh, in the last 10 generations since the Industrial Revolution, we are the first society to marginalize our older adults. Because, let me just see if I can get this right, there aren't enough jobs to go around, for example, right now. And so we say, okay, you know, up or out. And when, you, you, when you're out, you're out. If you're lucky, you have something else. My wife, who is wonderful, is, is a great artist, and she taught college for years, but now she's writing a book, and at the same time she's doing her wonderful art and having shows all over the place. But if I were to retire... I'd be sitting there looking at my navel saying, something's not right here. Absolutely. No, it is. It's a misunderstanding of the possibilities of aging. And yes, it was about availability of jobs, but you know, the retirement age, where did that come from? In late uh, 19th sure. century Germany, they were the first to come up with any kind of social pension system. And life expectancy then was about 49, so they said, hmm, let's choose 65. <laughs> Nobody's going to make it. No one's going to make it. That's you know. the basis of our expense with Social Security. We said 65. Exactly. But all of a sudden, that got chiseled into stone. What happens at 65? Did you feel any differently at 66? The day after your birthday? Uh, Only because everybody 60. told me I should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a ridiculous misunderstanding of aging, the possibilities of aging, and this tremendous resource we have to just sort of throw it out. We need to rediscover, to, to get back to our very humanity with the role of older adults, the intergenerational need for exposure to older adults, and the guidance. You know what? I think our society needs adult supervision. Explain. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can take government, you can take many of our policies, and... Say the older you are, the more you know. Yes, but if you look at the performance of our government, you know, um, you, can, you could take Congress. Lately, it's uh, yeah. pretty safe to say that that seems to be pretty dysfunctional. You know, where's the adult supervision here? But basically what I'm saying is that we have a resource. Elders have consistently been the guiders, the counselors of our societies to keep them on track. Yeah. They made mistakes, but basically, you know, this. Once you have a lot of experience, you're, you know, you're, you're able. You, you've seen it. I've seen it. You, you're. I think you're able to make better judgments. And we've sort of gotten off that, and we've pasteurized our older adults, and we don't give them an opportunity to guide us. The name of the book is "Live Long, Die Short: A Guide to Authentic Health and Successful Aging," and it's by Roger Landry, M.D., M.P.H. 
and a man who has served his country over the years. Let me uh, go to one of my favorite parts of your book. And here I really want to challenge you, Roger, and that is stop being so stressed, everybody. You're, you're telling us, look, stress is the great killer. I agree with you. And I'm under constant stress for one reason or another. How do I get rid of it? Well, let's go back. Where does this come from? Why do we even have a stress response? You know, we share this response with our mammal friends and cousins. Stress is a function of physiology designed to keep us alive. When we are threatened, we either flee or we fight. We a fight, fight or flight mechanism. <laughs> now, that's been in us, and uh, when that happens, everything kicks in, and we can do superhuman things, lift Volkswagens, uh, you know, be, win uh, Congressional Medal of Honors with tremendous amounts of bravery, and it's great, and it saves us. Unfortunately, we humans have evolved in our brains where we can initiate that response with our thoughts. Right. With our thoughts, the same response. The, the adrenal goes, the glucocorticoids, and so basically we become an organism where we're stepping on the brake and the gas at the same time. So we're being, so let me see if I get this right. We are being um, preemptive in our stress. Well, stress was meant to respond to a very specific threat. There's a great book by Robert Sapolsky, says, why don't zebras get ulcers? If you see a zebra chased by a lion, it will run, and it will be run faster than it ever can, and if it gets away, it's grazing within seconds. We, as a species, with our thoughts, our chattering minds, are projecting ourselves out of this current moment where we live our lives into the future where we can worry about things or the past where we have... It's almost magic, isn't it? If we worry about it, it's not going to happen, that kind of stuff. I don't know why we do it as a species. It, it seems well, extremely dysfunctional, but, but... Well, it is. Let me give you one hypothesis that I always liked, and that is that Freud said that Thanatos and Eros love versus fear of death, and that anybody, as they age, will start to fear death more. That is a stressor, isn't it? You know, I challenge that. I, I, I have respect for that. But I wonder, I can ask you, Alan. I, I know I deal with people in their ninth and tenth decade of sure. life. I, feel, I find very little fear of death. Interesting. I, more, I find a fear of losing independence, losing their mental faculties, being a, a burden to their families. Very, very few of them I have seen fear death, per se. So I think that the, the stress that we have, yes, I think it is a fear response, but I think we as creatures are still this 2.0 version in a 10.0 world. And that gap between who we really are as a species, we're slackers. We don't evolve the same way as our technology and our society. We are still cavemen, you know, 2.0 in a 10-point world. Gotcha. And that gap between how we live and what, who we really are physiologically and what we require creates tremendous amounts of stress. Okay, so you've dealt, Dr. Roger Landry, MD, MPH, you have dealt with people. You obviously did your work at Tufts, your medical work at Tufts and Harvard. Yes, the, the School of Public the Health. School yes. of Public Health. And so you've seen all the stats and everything else. So we're all sitting here, we're saying, that's very nice, doctor. Now tell us how to get rid of the stress. Fair enough. Do you do any crafts? No, I'm very bad at it, but I'm an exercise nut. Okay, when you're exercising, if you're doing it mildly, if it's really strenuous, you are focused on time. But if you're just walking, enjoying yourself, what happens to time? Time is... You're not as aware of it. I, mean, I speak to artists, and, and this is probably a better example, a painter. If you ask a painter, what happens to time when you paint? They say, there is no time. Hours will pass. And then I will ask them, how do you feel? And they say, I feel comfortable. I feel, I hear joyful. I hear... 
It's just a pleasant place. This is being in the present moment without chattering mind, taking us out of that, worrying about the future, running out of money, what's going to happen to the grandkids, what's going to happen to the world, you know, terrorism, what's going to happen to me, even, or going back and with regrets. and And when you are in that present moment, this is, you know, you hear it's almost a cliche living in the present moment, but this is where we're meant to live. This is where the zebra lives. This is where our mammalian cousins live, our dogs. And yes, we've evolved. We can't live that way all the time. But when your first grandchild was born, you had one of those moments. When you see a sunset or you see the mountains or you see the ocean or you're with an animal or you're reading a good book or painting, you feel those moments. So what do we do about this stress? We break the momentum by going to one of those places, whatever does it for us, where even if just for a minute, or two. Meditation name does name, it. Name okay, meditation. Meditation. Transcendental. We, transcendental meditation. Meditation, just as simple as focusing on our breath, which is the very basic type of instruction. Do you, you teach your it. patients how to do that? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I do it myself. I've done it for many, many years. And we see, we're, we're actually seeing brain changes now, very positive brain changes in people who meditate because they're able to, it's not that we're immune to all this chattering mind and this self-generated stress. And by the way, in the way we live today, there aren't lions or tigers at your tail so that well, about... Well, there are equivalents. <laughs> but still, how we respond to that is our stress response and our choice. So most of the stress we generate exactly is, right. is, is self-generated. You know, this spiritual advisor, Eckhart Tolle, he, uh, he wrote a book particularly important to me, The Power of Now. And he says there's really only three choices when you have a, quote, situation. Say it's a stressful situation. You can either change it, you can run away from it, or you can accept it. And which is the preferred choice according to you, Roger, right? <laughs> I think so. I think that's that's living. That's the reality of the world. These things exist. I mean, take a marriage. I mean, okay, you can walk away from it. You can try to fix it. And we've, you know, most of us have been married a long time. Forty-three years for me. Same time. (laughs) Right. Same time. You realize then? Look at you know. We can we can show our intellectual uh, uh, maturity that we've gained over the years. and we can trade that. But, you know, so you can. It's easy to walk away from a fight or a marriage, uh, you know. Okay, so you talked about fight or flight before. I love that, of course, and I certainly agree. And there isn't a day that somebody doesn't call, write me a note or leave a message on my phone. You miserable SOB. <laughs> you know, you did this. And my response used to be to be defensive. My response now is to say, thanks for checking in. <laughs> What there else you can go. you do? See, see, and I I'm, always feel better about that. See, this is why elders need to need to be. We need to have a council of elders that help the government, whatever level of government. We need a council of elders in organizations. We need to have elders there at least to provide a balanced view. You know, look, our ancestors, our ancient ancestors, they were stressed, yes, for survival. They were stressed when there was an immediate attack, a lion or whatever, weather or food, as they were stressed. But they dealt with those stresses. And so, once again, connecting back to those set of traits, movement, being part of a social group, you know, how we eat, when we eat, the connection with nature, the connection with the intergenerational, these are the things that help build, this is a lifestyle, that help build resilience against the world, resilience against disease, resilience against stress, which I like to say stress rots us from within. We know it's destructive to brain tissue. We know it's destructive to our heart. I like to say we're the only species who can build bridges and block arteries with how we think. <laughs> but, but, Roger, 
it is always easy to say don't be stressed and in fact yes some of us get stressed just by saying i'm not doing enough to get rid of my stress you know that's easy to say i love your suggestion about breathing how long does that take you every day when you do it well meditation uh you know some people think you have to be able to put your legs around your neck and then you know do all crazy positions meditation it's nothing sophisticated it can be as simple as i'm just going to focus now on my breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. My breath is going in, my breath is going out. Now what's going to happen, Alan, when you start that, is within seconds they're going to say, well, is that right? Is that long enough? Is that what Dr. Landry intended? You know, and, and our mind clicks it. That's okay. Just gently put the mind away. Once again, focus on that breath. Or focus on a sunset. Uh, take a walk in the woods. Whatever does it for you that, that stops this chattering mind. Artists we've talked about, but uh, listening to music, being with a child, being with a pet, movement. These are things that we are wired to get closer to who we are as humans and being in the present moment. The stress is going to come back. Our brains have evolved and we're going to do that. The important thing is to break the momentum with those things that do it for you and we're each individuals and so meditation may do it for you may do it for me but for others it's art it's walking just do that that's taking care of yourself that shuts off this escalating rotting that's going on within you but due to stress and you'll be better prepared to handle it you know you're absolutely right i have no doubt about it when we all project ourselves into situations where we're hearing a great symphony or we're sitting there and all of a sudden the stress isn't there uh, Sometimes stress. you'll even tear up. Your stress isn't there. You, you feel joy, and you, and yeah. you can actually. I I was just at a symphony. I love Strauss waltzes, and and really, I found myself tearing up. I said, "Why is that?" It's a matter of of joy, and you think that's what tearing up is is a matter of joy. So if you like schmaltzy films, which I do, um, and you see Forrest Gump at the end, or you see you know this or that, and you say, you can sort of associate with it, and all of a sudden. The tears come in your eyes. Well, certainly it's from sadness and that sort of thing. But when, when something like that occurs, I believe that it's a reconnection with who we are as a species. This, this basic wired into our DNA, being in the moment and, and experiencing this gift of life at this particular moment. The, the, the music or just the thought or the connection. Have you ever made a special connection with someone and finding yourself tearing up? Sure. And you said, why? Why is that happening? Yeah. You know, I didn't know for decades, but now that's my theory. That, again, it, it's something that, that sets our very DNA vibrating because well, whoever it's... The, come, whoever the guy who was who sent you to medical school or gave you that special break or at some point in your life, and you think about that sort of great moment and then... You're lost. You're done. Yeah, you're exactly. Gonna, you're going to cry. <laughs> yeah, you are. And very soon your chattering mind is going to kick in and that moment is gone. But that was an unselfish thing that was that someone did for you, you know, a higher purpose that someone did for you, or that you you know, you know connected on a human level. There's nothing like that. And I what mean, if you do it for someone else? All, all the better. Uh, it's all the better because we're wired to do that also. You know, many people think it's only the receiving part. You know, around this season that we just went through, that's part of it. But unfortunately, it's been a, we we wandered from that also. But giving, yes, absolutely. We're talking to live long, long, die short author Roger Landry, um, who is a man of great sagaciousness and wisdom, and appreciate so much your being here with us. Let me ask you this: Never act your age. Talk to us about that. 
Well, this whole misconception we have of what aging is about in our society is reaped with stereotypes. The stereotype being we're born, we become our best, and then we begin a period of decline that may last decades, and now that we're living longer, can last many decades. The whole premise of this book is that we, in fact, know the research tells us that we can age in a different way. We can limit the amount of time that we are impaired or sick, and we can actually live long, die short. I like to uh, the analogy of a, of a fall leaf. So uh, being from New England, I want to age like a leaf. I want to get more colorful as I age. I want to blend with others to make more beauty than I can make alone. And when my time comes, I want to fall off the tree. Acting your age in our society is essentially accepting the stereotype that I'm going to decline. That you I'm You buy that, into it. You buy into it. And so to that extent, you don't want that to happen. And you know, I advise people when they think, where should I live? I say, well, you can do a lot of things, but don't live with your kids. Because your kids love you so much, they want to eliminate all risk. And there's a certain amount of baggage that goes between you know parents and child that limits you. And so when you start, if you begin to stop not acting your age, they're going to think you're demented. I mentioned in the book a great story. I, I was privileged to get to know Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier, as you know. And I did a physical on him, and he came into my office. And after the physical, which was fantastic, he kicked back and he began to talk about his life, his magnificent life. And as an aviation buff, I loved it. And at some point, he became quiet, and he says, Doc, you know what? On the 50th anniversary of breaking the sound barrier, I'm going to do it again. I was a young buck thinking I knew it all, and I made a huge mistake, Alan, and I'll freely admit it on the airways. I said to him, but Chuck, you'll be 73 years old. And he looked at me, and he said, what's your point? And exactly, what is your point? It's a number. It's how you feel. But living a lifestyle that, that helps you build resilience, both physical, mental, social, and spiritual resilience, that is what's really required. You know, I was on a task force to determine what are going to be the criteria for space passengers, you know, when, when we shoot sure. them up as passengers. The first issue that we dealt with was age, and we unanimously rejected age as a restricting qualification. It was about function. And so when, again, if we can, we can live this lifestyle that's closer to who we are as humans, fill the needs of who we are, the movement, the diet, the social connection, the purpose, and the continued growth physically and mentally and socially. We build resilience. We can go on that spaceship, no matter what your age. I know a guy who just said to his daughter one day, don't worry, you know, you're going to get everything I have. It's an interesting story. <laughs> you can get everything I have. You'll be fine. And the daughter said back to the father, no, 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 no. I don't want your money. I want you around forever. But whatever money you have should be used to protect your life at the point at which you can't sustain yourself in the way that you are now. In other words, assisted living or the rest of that. Yes. And I've wondered about that story because I wonder whether the daughter said the right thing. I think that was probably a very uh, individual thing. I think it takes the personality of the two of the two people in, into... Yeah. Well, it was in, done out into, of love, that's for sure. Surely, it was. And But again, this comes back to this. This is why I don't want to live with... The, you shouldn't live with your, your, your children. children. I don't believe... Maybe there's exceptions, but in general, no. And I tell audiences this because this generation that is now in their 80s and 90s, the greatest generation, they accepted their responsibilities fully. Those responsibilities came from, you know, getting married, their education, the job they took, whatever they had to do, they did. 
now. Their children are grown. They've done it all. They've had their careers. I tell them now is the time to fully choose what you're about. What is your purpose? How do you want to define yourself? And don't be encumbered by what others think or even your children. You know, it's what's in here in your, in your heart in your head and what you're capable of doing, which is a lifestyle thing. Follow that dream. Like Joseph Campbell said, find your bliss, you know, follow your bliss. And you see older adults doing that, and I saw it in my own mother, and they just flourish in ways that their children, uh, they totally don't understand. Who is this person? Trying so we can't things. really allow other people to identify who we are. We have to do it ourselves. We do. We do. Certainly, that you can get consultation about things that seem to generally apply to everybody, but we are individuals. Okay. So now you're a doctor, a physician. You've studied the human body. You know that... Uh, Right now, although I'm sure we're going to figure this out, dementia comes on because different things, chemicals, you know, get onto our nerves and whatever else, uh, and arteries. But those are realities. I mean, I think you could probably make the argument stress may aggravate it, but it's going to happen. It's true. Stress does aggravate it. You know, there was a study not too many years ago of some, of some nuns in Minnesota, and they followed these nuns, and these nuns lived very active physical and mental lives. And when they died, and it was usually fairly late, and they did autopsies, and many of these nuns, they found the brains, Alzheimer brains, deposits of colloid and tangled masses. But they had no symptoms of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. The conclusion, lifestyle. Being physically active so we get blood to our brain, being mentally active, especially learning new things, we re we're the architects of our brain. We grow new pathways, and it protects you us. You really believe that? It is absolutely true. It's not just my belief. We're able to demonstrate that now with brain scanning. If I say, Alan, why don't you learn Italian if you don't know it? And we scan your brain. You begin to study Italian. Certain areas of your brain begin to get bigger and thicker. You are growing new pathways in your brain. You are the, we are the architects of our brain, and it never stops as long as we have a pulse so that we can react. Jill Taylor from Harvard had a stroke, wiped out half her brain. She knew, because she was a neuroanatomist, that if she continued to challenge herself to be able to do something, she couldn't replace those, but she could grow new pathways, which would be a redundant pathway to get to what she needs to do, and you can hear her on TED Talks now. We can do this, and we believe it, but the fact is we accept that aging is about senior moments. I hate the term. Adolescents have those moments. They just don't put the input on it. We accept that we are going to decline mentally. Yes, we learn differently. We're not maybe as quick, but we can continue. Well, do you ever reach for a word that isn't there? Absolutely. I do. And I don't worry about it. You know, it's like the keys. You know, if you can't find your keys, that's okay. But if you forget what the keys are for, well, then you get something <laughs> going on. But you can accommodate for those things and to the extent that you don't stress about them that this is the beginning of the end no problem you can continue to grow you can, can your brain can continue to grow you can continue to learn new things long as you have a pulse now based on what you're telling us Roger Landry what is it that the government should be doing that fits with what you're suggesting about us Masterpiece Living is uh, my, my group, a magnificent group of people whose vision is that we will maximize the potential of all of us. And they're dedicated to that because the research has shown that we, our lifestyle is the major determinant of how we age. 
And uh, we're committed to that. And the way we do that is we, we partner with communities and we offer them the ability for individuals to get to look at their lifestyle, get better. We help build environments where this is going to happen. And we collect data. We collect the data to show them the effect. But well, give most, us an example of an environment, such an environment. You an build. environment where, where people believe that older adults can grow, an environment that realizes that certain lifestyle characteristics are particularly beneficial for well, older adults. Are these adult. buildings, are these communities, what are they when you say we build an environment? Okay, we work, uh, we started working with retirement communities. So we would go in there and uh, we started working with just individuals. Well, we would give them tools, like in this book, we have a, a way to assess your lifestyle. So we give them the ability to test, look at their lifestyle, get feedback, work with a coach on those areas that they want to work on where they're at higher risk for bad things happening, dementia, heart disease, whatever. But in addition to that, we found that when you're in an environment that is facilitative, that realizes you can grow, is not one that's saying, we're going to take care of you. Let me open this door for you. That's all very kind. But metaphorically, if we do things for people and we only care about people and make them comfortable and secure, that's not the kind of environment where we grow. If you hang out with people who are about skiing or being physically active or mentally active, you rise to that mean, you get better. And so these whole communities, the staff as well as the residents, we provide resources, education, training, so that you know someone who works in dining realizes that this person at the table right now is someone who can grow and who wants to interact with me as a, as a younger person and who I can learn from. It creates a different environment. This is what we need to do for the country. This is the kind of public policy. So we're collecting data to build very compelling arguments for public policy change. So in general, I would say public policy that acknowledges that older adults can grow, that acknowledges that older adults are a resource we cannot afford to throw away. We need the guidance that every society pre-industrial revolution realized this and used older adults. Okay, President Obama is listening to this broadcast right now. He says, you know, that guy makes a certain amount of sense, but that's on a sort of middle-level philosophical approach. What can we do, what could I do administratively or through Congress to make sure that stuff is getting done? Well, it's actually beginning. Nelson Mandela had formed a Council of Elders, which was an international Council of Elders, to look at the major issues within the, the globe and provide some advice and guidance. I believe that we as a nation, uh, why can't we have a non-binding council of elders who can, for every major issue, be a uh, guiding and consulting group, a well, council? What makes you think that that is, doesn't exist in the United States Senate right now, council of elders? We know that they've fallen on their faces. We know they can't agree on anything. And we know a lot of them are quite old. What has happened there, however, is that with partisanship and with the specific issues that are there and the need to get reelected, that we're not looking at elders who are who have evolved to a point where they're guiding the whole population, who are giving the benefit of their wisdom. We're having people who, unfortunately, because of the way we've set it up, are more self-serving. Some of them maybe say, I'm serving my constituency, and they are, but the nature of the beast here is that there's a competition But, Roger, going do you on. think that as we grow older, we actually get less self-serving? Yes, I Why? do. I do. What makes you think that? I think it's the nature of, of our species that as we get a more experience, well, there's a well-known fact that if you give a challenge to a young person, 
we now can scan brains. One part of their brain lights up as they begin to, to meet this challenge. You give that same challenge to an older adult and their entire brain lights up. Now, some would say because they need to to answer it, but no, that's not what's going on. The older adult brain is tapping into all the experience, the memories, the things that they have in order to work on this particular challenge. This is the kind of approach that I think we need. And as we get older, as we learn, there is no black and white in the world, right, Alan? It's all gray as you get older. It is. That's what I have found. And that gray approach to a particular challenge is what we need. Because if we see just black and white, we're going to make mistakes, big mistakes. Well, we got a bunch of old people on the Supreme Court, not all of them, but many of them. we got a bunch of older people in the United States Senate. we got a bunch of older people in the House of Representatives. I don't think that their record is that they were able to lift themselves above the self-serving need. Now, I think what you're suggesting is admirable. I'd love to see it happen. But who would pick that council of elders? Who would, who would serve on it? How would it happen? I'd love to have all the answers. I don't. I think in theory this is what needs to happen. I think we should do it at the organizational level, town, city, society. In addition to this, however— so In Great Barrington, Mass., we should have a council of elders who sort of absolutely. look over things. You absolutely should. What a great I, idea. I, I believe it. What a great idea. And not make it an election. No, no. <laughs> because then yeah. we're— but, well, who uh, would pick them? I mean, the nature of democracy is you uh, have elections. You uh, have to be a democratic process, and I, uh, I and I don't. I'd like to know how our hunter-gatherer societies did that. I think it was chronology. You I would think. know is also how big you are. Yeah. Uh, you will. You'll be. A, remember the two thousand year old man in Mel Brooks, and you know and the, the tallest <laughs> saber-toothed tiger. And they ran out out of fear. Um, but there's more, Alan. Yeah. It'd be more than the guidance. There's the whole public policy that would foster a lifestyle that is again closer to. The, the one that we really need, that movement and uh, connection and role and higher purpose. Uh, without higher purpose, if we're just self-serving in our lives, we just flail about and it sure. becomes, it doesn't become the kind of society that looks after each other. And so this also, public policy that encourages movement, that encourages you to take care of yourself. We can't, as older adults, we can't expect, treat me better as an older adult. We have to take on our responsibility and say, all right, I need to give back. I can't just recreate. I just can't have a sense of entitlement that you have earned, but yet I still have to give back to society. And that kind of public policy that, that facilitates that involvement, facilitates not only the physical movement, but the social connection, the role, the higher purpose, this is the kind of public policy we need. Well, let's talk about me for a minute. Here I am, I'm 72. And what a good-looking guy. Thank you. <laughs> and I get from my colleagues who I grew up with, who are now my age in the 70s, but who retired at 55 from the stock market or whatever else is. And I hear from them and they say, when are you gonna retire? It's a sort of pressure which I deeply resent. You know, In other words, they did their thing, I think that's great, but why should I do what they want? Then I hear from younger people who say, you know, when are you, basically, when are you gonna get out of the way? <laughs> You know, and and, well, and so there are a whole cross. I think there is self-serving motivation for both. I think the ones who retired early have doubts. I think that uh, you know, there's. You the mean when they when they write me that letter, that's an expression of their doubt. I believe so. I believe that they're struggling with a sense of purpose and meaning, higher purpose in particular. They that, play that golf every day. 
I suppose that could do it for some people, but I think as a species, uh, we're built to need more. But you know, we've we've kind of learned that retirement, that success in retirement, is the ability to not have to sweat or not have to uh, be out of the office every day, and we buy into it. But I believe that that leaves us as a species a feeling of emptiness and looking for more. And maybe we fill it with a Maserati or we fill it with more trips. But I believe it's... And and so the younger person now, they really want you out because they want your job. That's understandable. Well, some do. Some. My producer here keeps worrying that I'm going to retire, letting me know about that. Well, then there's a, there's a higher purpose there, that we want this station to be all that it can be, and Alan is clearly a part of that. Yeah, but we have, as you have indicated so well, Dr. Landry, we have set up sort of typologies and patterns, and we live by them. And, you know, uh, somebody will say to me, you know, I spend all my time thinking about my grandchildren or being with my grandchildren, and wait till you have a grandchild. You know, that'll be your social purpose. You mentioned before that... There is no more euphoric feeling, I believe, is what you were said than when that first grandchild is born. So it's very hard to run against type, much as if you were the salmon swimming upstream. I encourage people to have higher purpose. Now that could involve children. I and I have to admit, I, as a physician and uh, you know, person had been to school quite a bit, I said, okay, I'm going to enjoy being a grandfather. Boy, did I underestimate it. It is a mystical experience. And I believe it's mystical because of, of our roots. We were an intergenerational tribes. But the fact is, it's mystical. Now, it doesn't have to be children. You know, I think it's having a higher purpose, which, in my observation, has to involve, doesn't have to, but in almost all cases, involves living things. Now, that can be plants, animals, people. It can be anything. But I think to have higher purpose, usually there's other living things involved. So it can be raising roses for the beauty. It can be trying to wipe out landmines. It's trying to, you know, reform our legislative process in Washington. You know, it's something that, that is higher purpose. And that's individually defined. But I believe if it's not there, we're kind of empty and searching and flailing about. Well, as long as I have a few seconds, let me ask you this. Based on what you just said... Do you think people who are more of a progressive or liberal orientation, I know this is taking that, who have a higher announced social purpose, we want to make things better for everybody. We want everybody to have some equality of opportunity. Do you think that those, this is getting you into trouble, I know, but do you think, Roger, that those people are more likely to live longer? Well, I'm in public health, and I'm from Massachusetts, so I think you know where my leanings are, and uh, I believe that... Yeah, but I know who some of your Republican friends are. (laughs) (laughs) We have one in general, don't we? A common common person who we love very much. We do. I don't believe that people do things for a wrong or bad purpose. I think that whatever they do, I, I believe from the most heinous historical figures we have, maybe even to current day bad guys, I think by some distorted way they felt they were doing the right thing and that it had some sense of higher purpose. So J. Edgar Hoover may have felt he was meeting a higher purpose, but I hate to say this, but so might have, and this is not a comparison, Adolf Hitler. Exactly. I believe that he really did feel that a, that a race that was purer was uh, was better for humanity. I'm sure he thought that. And uh, so, again, we may be a little distorted in that, but when we think of others, when we think of, of a larger population rather than ourselves, I love that my kids used to say, well, 
Daddy, how can we lie? What's a white lie? I said, well, a white lie is when the person you're telling it to feels better. Mm. And a bad lie is when you benefit from it. Mm. So I think when we think of others, a larger population, whoever that is or whatever we're doing, I think we're on the right track, both health-wise as well as a society. Not to put you on the spot, but once again, I want to go back to the question. So therefore, do you think people who are more committed to social purpose and equality so that everybody gets health care or that everybody gets a shot in society or that every kid gets pre-K are more likely to be devoted to social purpose? I think we're in a very shameful situation in our country today with the levels of poverty, lack of education, lack of opportunity that is in our very, within our very borders. The cause of that, I won't venture at this point in time, but I think it needs to be addressed. You're a doctor. You know people's bodies. You know what's happening every day. We're having inventions that, you know, people can go and have gastroscopy, endoscopy. You can head things off. Does that medical model interfere with what you are prescribing for us? You know, I went into preventive medicine over 30 years ago, and my colleagues, my peers were saying, what are you, crazy? I mean, because this is not what we were taught. The medical information just exploded, and so we had to fractionate the human being into the neurological system, the gastrointestinal system. Big problem. Yeah. And it's a huge problem because we're dealing with humans, Who's holistic look at humans, all of us. Yes. physical, mental, social, and spiritual beings. And we need to look at all of that. If, if we're going to be truly healthy, this book talks about that. The 10 tips that, that I have in Live Long, Die Short address the physical, mental, social, and spiritual, the entire picture. And so in fractionating our medicine and our approach, I think we did a disservice to us, uh, to all of us, in that we oftentimes fail to realize this is taking place in the context of a whole human being. You are so right. I mean, when you think of a 70-year-old having to go to, you know, maybe his bones are not quite right, osteoporosis, and go to the right person for that, and then somebody goes to the gastroenterologist, and somebody goes to the diabetes guy, and somebody goes to this and that. So pretty soon, you're old enough, you can have 10 different doctors. Who's going to coordinate all of that? and who fail to realize that because your wife threw you out and you are stressed and depressed, that you're at higher risk for all these disease, or maybe you're, you're just lonely and want to talk to someone and have someone give you some medicine as a symbol that they care about you, that yeah. someone cares about you. Yeah, when I moved into Great Barrington, there was an elderly doctor named Gilligan, a wonderful man, wonderful man, and I think everybody in town used him, and now there are all kinds of doctors. But you know, this is, what, 1979, right? no, 1971, something like that. And it was a different kind of thing. He would sit there, he would talk to you. He'd say, where, now, where do you eat in New York when you go down there? And there was this sort of overall look at you in terms of health. But he would do the tests, too. Now I think we've come to the age of specialization. We have, and marvelous things have happened. This yeah. has been allowed us to live longer, and just magnificent things. But I'm afraid it has come at the expense of looking at the entire older adult. And uh, again, I, I, I think we, we pay a price for that. So what's the answer? I think it's a realization that everything you're seeing gastrointestinally or cardiology-wise is in the context of, of a whole human being. And we can't divorce the, the fact that we are who we are as a species. And Ellen Langer at Harvard, um, you know, addresses this whole idea of placebos. Now, when I was in medical school, if you got better when I gave you a sugar pill, a placebo, it meant you really weren't ill. 
But the fact that she believes, and I believe it also, that if someone firmly believes that this placebo is going to make them better, that someone is giving me this because they care about that, they know what's wrong with me, and they're going to give that to me, that we program our brains, and we see the changes. We see it, the substance, the, the neurotransmitters and the, the neuroendocrine, neuroendocrine substances that are secreted that make us better, that strengthen our immune system so that we do get better. When we have strong immune systems, it's not only about infectious disease, it's about cardiac disease and dementia. And social connection strengthens immune, our immune system. This lifestyle we talk about in, in this book, or that addresses the physical, mental, social, and spiritual, strengthens our immune system so that we have mm. resilience against things happening to us. And so we may very well not experience symptoms or disease if we're living a lifestyle that's closer to who we are as a species. Well, when people lose their mate, a year later they're dead sometimes. Exactly. You know, some people say, well, they gave up. Well, they did. They, they became depressed. Their immune system just crashed. And the first one in, it doesn't matter whether it was heart disease or dementia or, or been hit by a car because you weren't paying attention. That's what gets you. But the fact is you gave up. Your immune system crashed, and you are open. You are no longer resilient. You are open to the first threat. It's a terrific book. I want to recommend it to everybody. Live Long, Die Short, A Guide to Authentic Health and Successful Aging. It is uh, by Dr. Roger Landry, who has an impressive list of credentials and who I have really enjoyed talking to, not only in terms of a good program, but in terms of my own life. And thank you so much. We are out of time. And Roger Landry, I want to thank you for coming in. Live Long, Die Short, A Guide to Authentic Health and Successful Aging. I'm so delighted we've been able to spend this time together. Thanks for coming all the way over here and being our guest. And likewise delighted, Alan. It's been a pleasure. listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.